I, I've worked with people who've been in that situation where they were an athlete in high school, they got injured, they were prescribed these opiates, and then they found themselves dependent on them. And they either were able to keep kind of milking the doctors, or they started buying them from friends, or unfortunately, they turned to heroin because it's cheaper. Uh, pills are really expensive. So that can definitely be, it can definitely start from like a legitimate prescription standpoint and then snowball from there for sure. Hey, welcome back to Normalize the Conversation. Today I'm here with Dr. Natalie Feinblatt, licensed clinical psychologist. You can connect with Dr. Natalie on Instagram at Healing with Dr. Natalie. Natalie, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you really? <laughs> How am I really? That's a good question. Um, I am a little tired. Um, and yeah, I think I think that's how I am really. I'm just a little tired. <laughs> Thank you for asking. Of course, totally relatable. <laughs> and I'm so glad that you're honest. A lot of people, when you say, how are you really go straight to, I'm good, I'm good. Just that <laughs> usual answer. And it's so important to be honest because sometimes we're all feeling tired and we're all struggling. And it's nice to know that we're not alone. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So let's talk about addiction. The word addiction is really thrown around, but as a mental illness, what is addiction? So if you want to break it down to its kind of most basic components, um, addiction is when somebody is unable to control their use of a substance. That is the kind of most bare bones way to break down addiction, in my opinion. Um, if you want to add a couple elements to that, it is when somebody um, ha uh, builds a tolerance to a substance over time, which means that they either have to take more and more of it to get the same effect, or they're taking the same amount, but with diminishing returns. And then it also means withdrawal, which is that if they stop it, they start to exhibit the characteristic withdrawal sim symptoms for whatever the substance was. So I like to say that the most basic is not able to control your use of a substance. And then if you want to dive into it a little bit more, it's that you are building a tolerance to the substance and that when you stop, you exhibit withdrawal symptoms. That is a really great clarification of the term because I don't think a lot of people know. And that throws off the understanding of it and mm -hmm. creates the stigma. Mm -hmm. And people think that it's a choice that people are choosing to use these substances. Mm -hmm. And it's not really something they can control. It's that they want to. Right. So where does addiction actually stem from? Well, I mean, like most other uh, mental health diagnoses, we don't have the, you know, 100% clear and correct answer of where addiction comes from. Um, addiction is definitely a case of nature plus nurture. Um, so, you know, genetic studies uh, do prove that there is a genetic component for addiction um, because people, uh, I don't, oh, I don't remember the exact numbers off the top of my head, so I, I won't say numbers, but um, you know, identical twins, if one of them has it, an addiction, the other one is X times more likely than the general population to have it. Or if you have a parent who has it, you have, you're X times more likely to develop it than the general population. So there's definitely a genetic component. However, 
since it's not a one-to-one correlation, it's like somebody could have a parent with an addiction and they develop an addiction, but their sibling doesn't, right? So it's like, it's not totally genetic. Otherwise, either they both would have it or not. Um, So that's where the nurture part comes in, where it's like, if it's kind of that perfect storm of somebody's got a genetic predisposition and their life has had a certain amount of stressors or trauma in it, those two things together could kick that genetic predisposition into actually expressing itself, right? So sometimes it's just genetics, sometimes it's just stressors and and trauma, but most of the time it's a mixture of both. That is a really good explanation because a lot of people think it's only genetic or that it's only a choice. And there are a lot of other factors at play. I recently mm-hmm. um, attended a Narcan training course. Oh, nice. It was really interesting because mm-hmm. I didn't know that Narcan existed or what it was. And oh, wow. Okay. the value of even having one on you. So I actually have one in my car now. Good. And good, good. Thank you. But <laughs> what I learned from it is that a lot of times addiction can actually start when a high schooler gets injured and they're prescribed mm-hmm. like a pain medication. Yep. And we don't realize that it can actually stem from a pain medication and not mm-hmm. actually trying drugs. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that's part of the whole, you know, opiate epidemic of the last five to 10 ish years is that, yeah, sure, there were definitely people who were using drugs off the street or opiates off the street, like heroin. But there was also this huge number of people who were being prescribed really strong prescription opiates for either legitimate or questionable um, uh, physical pain issues, right? And like you said, I've worked with people who've been in that situation where they were an athlete in high school, they got injured, they were prescribed these opiates, and then they found themselves dependent on them. And they either were able to keep kind of milking the doctors, or they started buying them from friends, or unfortunately, they turned to heroin because it's cheaper. Uh, pills are really expensive. So that can definitely be, it can all, definitely start from like a legitimate prescription standpoint and then snowball from there for sure. And that's something that a lot of people don't know. So again, the stigma of addiction mm-hmm. and again, assuming that someone's a junkie. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That makes it so difficult for someone who wants to get support because mm-hmm. they don't even want to explore that within themselves. Am I someone who needs treatment, who needs help? Yep. So if I were listening to this and I'm kind of not sure if I'm in control of my substance or alcohol use, mm-hmm. how would I start to explore my current situation to determine if I did need support? Sure. So I would kind of go back to that original uh, definition I gave a few minutes ago, which is, have you tried to control or stop your using, right? If so, how'd that go, right? If you were able to stop for as long as you wanted and then start again, you're probably okay. If you were able to be like, whoa, I really need to cut back. I should really just drink on the weekend or not drink hard alcohol. And then you did that with no problem, you're probably okay, right? But if you've tried to do those things and time after time told yourself, I'm only going to do this, or I'm only going to do it like this. And then you kept going back to doing it 
in a really not great way, uh, there might be an addiction issue there, right? Same thing with tolerance and withdrawal, you know, like if you find yourself having to drink more and more or take more and more pills or whatever it is to get the desired effect. And then on the days when you're not drinking or using, you're experiencing these really unpleasant physical or psychological symptoms that could be like withdrawal. That could be a good sign that there's something problematic going on. So we've talked a little bit about withdrawal. What are some signs or symptoms of withdrawal? So it really depends on the substance. So the way that I, and I am not a medical doctor, I'm a psychologist, but I'm not a medical doctor. So I am certainly not the final word in this, but from my years of experience, and I've worked in detox units, um, the way we can, this is very broad, we're going to classify drugs as either upper drugs and alcohol as either uppers or downers. Okay. They are either things that bring you down and like relax you or you knock you out or there's uppers things that like get you going. Right. So like downers would be alcohol, opiates, benzos, like Xanax, things like that, that bring you down. And then uppers would be like cocaine, meth, Adderall, things that like bring you up. Right. So generally speaking, withdrawal symptoms will be the opposite of the intoxication symptoms, okay? So for downers that make you all relaxed and sleepy, withdrawal symptoms would be like insomnia, intense anxiety, um, uh, you know, physical shaking, things like this, like kind of more like up symptoms. And then for uppers, that to bring you up and make you happy and you stay up and you get all the stuff accomplished. Maybe um, withdrawal would be bringing you down. You're sleeping, you're eating, you're depressed. Right. So kind of think of it as like the opposite of whatever the substance does for you is probably what the withdrawal symptoms are going to be. That is so fascinating because in the movies, they kind of show withdrawal as just like this shaking and this like cold sweat and mm-hmm. this, overwhelming experience and Mm -hmm. I think it makes it that that's only what withdrawal could look like and people don't realize that there's another level Mm -hmm. and that that's not it because now that might deter me from thinking that I need support because this isn't how I'm acting this isn't how I'm behaving or feeling so Mm -hmm. I'm fine yeah exactly like like you said generally in in popular media what they show, it generally looks like opiate withdrawal. So like you have like this horrible flu and you're awake and you're throwing up and you have diarrhea and all this stuff. And like, yeah, that's definitely what opiate withdrawal looks like. Um, But that's just opiate withdrawal, right? Like you said, if it doesn't look like that, but you're still sick, that doesn't mean you're not withdrawing. It just means maybe you're withdrawing from something other than an opiate. Exactly. So now if I'm someone listening to this and I've recognized, okay, maybe this is me, this is something that I'm going through and I need some support. What are my options for getting the right kind of help? Sure. So this is, I mean, things can get complicated here um, because there are a lot of things people misunderstand or just don't have the information on. So what we generally try to do uh, is match somebody with what is called the the least restrictive environment or the LRE um, that they can get sober in, 
Okay. Because typically when people think about getting treatment and getting sober, they think about going to rehab, right? That's generally what people think about, right? And some people need rehab. Absolutely. Not a question. Not everybody needs rehab though. Um, generally what you should do if you're not already seeing a therapist who specializes in helping people with addiction, start seeing a therapist who specializes in helping people with addiction, right? Because outpatient therapy, which is a lot less expensive and a lot less time consuming than rehab might be enough to help you get sober, right? And if, if you just seeing a therapist once or twice a week for, you know, six or so months or whatever, if that helps you get sober, you don't need to go to rehab, right? So you start at the lowest level, like the least restrictive environment, right? Seeing a therapist once or twice a week. If that doesn't help you get sober, if you, if you're seeing a therapist and you still, you keep relapsing, you keep, you know, not doing what you're trying to do, then you might need a higher level of care, like an intensive outpatient program or IOP or a partial hospitalization program or PHP, right? Um, and then if, if you can get sober at that level of care, great. If not, that's when we start talking about rehab right? Going somewhere for 30, 60, 90 days, living there, getting treatment around the clock, right? Um, so I would say start with therapy. If you're already in therapy and it's not doing it for you, if you're not able to stay sober, talk to your therapist about doing an intensive outpatient program or a partial hospitalization program, because that should be your next go-to to see if that will be the right level of support to help you stay sober. I don't think many people realize how many of these resources are available. Like no, you said, <laughs> it's straight to this idea of rehab and right. it's so expensive. Yes, it is. <laughs> well, a lot of people don't get help because they yeah. feel like that's the only option and I can't afford it. And right. is it and really going to help me? Exactly. Or I can't take a month off work. I can't take yes. a month off away from my kids. Right. So that's not your only option. Like you may end up needing rehab, but you don't have to start there. That is such an important point. You don't have to start with rehab. There are so many other resources available. And what are some things you can expect when you start treatment, whether it's with a therapist or, um, an intense outpatient program or with rehab, what are some things you should know before you start? What might it look like? Sure. Um, well, one of the most important things is that you be honest um, because whether it's outpatient therapy, intensive outpatient rehab, whatever it is, if you're not being honest about your substance use um, and what your motivations are and what your ideas for the future are, it's not gonna be super helpful right? Um, people oftentimes, especially if it's their first go round, will go into treatment and kind of fudge. <laughs> they don't want to, they don't want, you know, it's a combination of things, but they, it's like, you know, they say, well, I, I'm drinking too much, but then they also neglect to mention that they do Coke every time they're drinking or, you know what I mean? Or they've got other things going on because they, they're ashamed. Um, they're not ready to stop certain things. They, they want to stop one thing, but not other things, right? So it's really important that you be honest about what you're using, how much you're using, right? Because if you want to, if you want a change, you have to do something different and starting off treatment by fudging, <laughs> you know, what your situation is, is not 
going to make anything different, right? It's just going to keep you stuck in the same loop. Um, if you are seeking like a higher level of care, like intensive outpatient, partial hospitalization, rehab, expect to be drug tested frequently, right? Um, that's often how programs ensure that people are staying sober. And, and often, you know, if you relapse and you test dirty, that's not, I can't speak for every program, obviously, but for most programs, that's not an automatic expulsion. It's just, we want to catch this as soon as possible because you might try to hide it. Right. Mm -hmm. And if you hide it, nobody can help you. (laughs) Right. So it's not like, oh, you're in trouble now. It's like, oh, you need more support. Right. Um, so maybe expect that. And then also, this is kind of more related to the logistical side of things that you were bringing up about expense. Um, you know, be prepared for treatment to not be cheap. Um, or if you need to find treatment that is like in network with your insurance company or, you know, is like uh, in network with government funding, expect that to be difficult. Um, unfortunately in our country, and I, you know, I won't get into it too much, but the system is kind of broken, especially when it comes to mental health and addiction. And so you'd think it would be easier to find programs that are, you know, covered by private insurance or, you know, public insurance. And the answer would be, it's actually kind of a challenge. So if that's the case, please don't give up. That is amazing advice because the mental health care system is broken and there's not, it's hard to get treatment because it is so inaccessible for so many different reasons, whether Mm -hmm. it's due to the cost or due to the ability to find someone near you. Mm -hmm. There's a lot at play and a lot of people feel like they can't access treatment. Mm -hmm. So what do they do? Do you have any advice for someone who is struggling, who doesn't know um, if they can access treatment, who's at that point, what advice would you have for them? Um, I would suggest that they investigate all possible avenues, whether it's like here, I'm in California, um, we have covered California, which is kind of like the cheapest kind of public insurance um, that you can get. If you can get that, do it work with them to find something that is covered as much of a pain in the butt as that process might be. Um, I would also encourage people, a couple other things. A lot of programs have scholarships um, where they'll set some money aside for people who can maybe pay like half the amount of treatment. Um, So maybe contact some local programs to see if there are any scholarship programs. Um, And then the cheapest option, which not everybody will want to do this, but it is the cheapest and most readily available, is, you know, there are free peer support programs for drug and alcohol addiction, the biggest being Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous. Um, and in most major cities, there are places, now I will give a caveat for the pandemic in a second, but there are places where there are literally eight meetings a day from like morning to night and you can just stay there, you know, all day. (laughs) Um, So again, that might not be everybody's idea of a great treatment experience, but if it's that or nothing, 
I would suggest you do that. Now, obviously, we're still in the midst of this pandemic, and at least here in California, a lot of the places that I just mentioned are still closed. Um, so all of those things have moved online, which, to be honest with you, is better for accessibility because if you want to attend meetings from 9 a.m. to 9 p.m., you can find them on your computer, it, you know, in America, in abroad, wherever, <laughs> and just attend those meetings all day. Um, again, it's the free option. Uh, it may not be the best option. It doesn't fit everybody. But if it's your only option, I'd say look into it. That is such important information. And back to what you were saying about the scholarships, about the different insurance coverage, mm-hmm. a lot of people don't know that that's available because that's not mm-hmm. something we talk about. Mm-hmm. So thank you so much for bringing that to our attention because sure. that is so helpful. And I think most people know about AA, but that's about it that people know about. So to know that there's so many other resources and so many other options available in addition to that is so helpful. So now I know that recovery is not linear. So say someone has been working really hard toward their recovery and then they've relapsed. Is that something that you find is common? And how would you get back on track during your recovery? Sure. So... I would say, yes, number one, super common. (laughs) Relapse does not have to be a part of everybody's story, but it's a part of a lot of people's story. (laughs) Um, You know, if you relapse, you're not doing it wrong. You're not bad. You're not failing. It's it's very, very common. Um, And I would say um, that if you relapse, the best thing you can do is to get honest, tell on yourself, whoever you can tell, right? Don't keep it a secret. Secrets will um, snowball into right back into using like you used to. Um, So tell whoever you can, get super honest and, um, you know, realize that uh, the time, like, let's say you were sober for like 45 days and then you relapsed, right? Um, let's say that you, you had a drink, you went, shoot, uh, why did I do that? Uh, you call your friend or you call your therapist or whoever, and you're like, I had a drink. It's like, okay, well, number one, stop. Don't drink anymore. (laughs) Right. Um, number two, come to a meeting, come to a session, do whatever. And then it's also that nothing can erase those 45 days. Right. This is one of the the minuses of counting your time. Right. Is that when you start over and you have to start at one again, it gives this illusion that like those 45 days are somehow magically gone. Um, you, You can't erase the progress that you made during those 45 days. Okay, you're back at day one if you're counting. Okay, fine. But those 45 days still happened. You grew, you learned, you were sober. Um, don't let the shame of addiction convince you that like, oh, you're back at the bottom, you know, nothing, nothing matters now. Cause that's just going to get you to go out more. That is amazing advice because I think a lot of people, when they relapse, feel defeated, feel hopeless. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah all that work was for nothing. Mm -hmm. I'm back at square one and this is it. Maybe I can't do this. Maybe I'm not Mm -hmm. strong enough. Maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe I'm not worthy. Mm -hmm. And to know that those 45 days of progress, they still count. 
That's not erased. You did it for that long. That's amazing. And you learned so much during that time. You can do it again. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It doesn't erase all the things you learned or the progress you made. Definitely not. So if I were someone who wanted to support a loved one through addiction and what should I do? What should I not do? What advice would you have for me? Um, well, in addition to working with people who struggle with addiction a lot, I also worked with love. I also work with loved ones a lot. Um, and what I would suggest is that, cause this typically I'll preface it with this, which is that typically when I, I work with, with loved ones, you know, spouses, family members, friends, whatever, um, you know, they, they don't always want to do their own work, right? Like they want to focus on like, how do I help my so-and-so get sober? Right. Um, and it's like, okay, well you kind of can't because like, unless they're ready to get sober, there's not a whole lot you can do to help them get sober. Right. But in the meantime, or if they've already gotten sober in the meantime, it's time for you to work on yourself. And people will kind of be like, what do you mean? Like my, my husband's the one who's an addict or my sister's the one who's an alcoholic or whatever. Like, why do I have to work on myself? And the answer to that is, is that because their addiction impacts you, right? It, hugely, the closer you are, the more it impacts you. And you deserve just as much help as they're getting with their sobriety in your own recovery, right? Um, so what I typically suggest to people is a combination of any of the following based on what you have access to, et cetera, um, might be good to try your own therapy for a little bit, um, see what comes up there, <laughs> might be good to read some books. There are a lot of books out there for loved ones of, of addicts and alcoholics. Just put that into Amazon and you'll get lots of options in return. Um, and then I would say it might not hurt to seek out your own support group. Um, the biggest one that I'm aware of is Al-Anon, which is the 12-step program for loved ones of addicts and alcohol or people with addiction and alcoholism. Um, and, you know, just like people with addiction and alcoholism need a, a peer support group oftentimes to help them get better, you might need a peer support group to help, you know, get you through this to help it can really help to be in a room full of other people who all know the pain of having someone in your life who struggles with an addiction. That is incredible advice because we want to save our loved ones. We want to fix them. We want to feel like we were there and we did something. And when it's not in your control, when it's not in your power, you feel so helpless a lot of times and that can take a toll on you. And like you said, someone else's addiction can impact you and Mm -hmm. you still deserve support, even though you're not the one who's going through it in that sense, Mm -hmm. you're still going through it in a different way and you still deserve to feel supported. Mm -hmm. That is incredible advice. Thank you so much for all that you've shared today. You are just absolutely incredible. Thank you. you. So are you. I mean, you and your organization are doing some really great work. So thank you.